We are entering into our fourth week of celebrating Advent. The dictionary defines Advent as the arrival of a noble, a person, a thing, or an event. As a church, we've chosen to define it in a more specific way this season, and this is what we've been saying. Advent is waiting. It's hoping. It's preparing. And it's expecting the arrival of Christ. First as the child, and then as the returning king. Three weeks ago, we leaned in and talked about waiting. We noted that the whole Old Testament anticipates the arrival of the king. Romans 8.23 says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, the firstborn of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. This becomes the beginning of the gospel message. You know, if you pick up a Bible and you want to start reading it, you'll, you'll know Jesus isn't there until like the second third of the book. And that's why. Because there's this waiting for him. Yesterday I explained to my kids who every day say, Dad, Dad, can we open presents today? No, we're waiting for Christmas. And in fact, that's the thrust in an Advent season is to realize we can jump quickly to Jesus and miss the fact of our sin, miss the longing, miss the hope that we need that Jesus fulfills, that the Old Testament puts before us. And yet we don't just wait as a people, we hope. And we took that step two weeks ago of moving from waiting to hoping, and we've talked about it in this way. It's like there's a continuum from need to fulfillment. This desperate need all the way to this complete and full joy. We move from waiting to hoping. And it says in Titus 2, 11 through 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We recognize that. While separating, while we were separated from him, Christ died for us. And so we moved from waiting to hoping, and last week we stepped into preparing And we continued our walk through the Old Testament, looking at Isaiah and Malachi, and they came into John 1 to consider John the baptizer. And you see this consistent call from all these prophets, prepare the way for the Lord. And as we step into it more, we lean in further, we find that there's only one way that you can adequately be prepared for Christmas. That's to be rightly related to God through Jesus Christ the Son. It's to recognize that Jesus died on a cross and took the place of us. To recognize that Christianity, our faith, is not about rule following. It's not about morality. It's not about being do-gooders. It's not about doing the right things. It's not about the list of our good outweighing the list of our bad. It's about this reality that the Bible says of us is that not one of us is good. Not one. That's not me talking to you. That's me telling you. The Bible says this is true about me. And it's true about you. And that Jesus Christ died on a cross, took our place. And so the preparation we need for Christmas is to know him. Is to know him in in his reality and in his fullness. And albeit we could spend a lot of time putting up lights, decorating trees, and these are all good things. 
We're not trying to push back on everything that is Christmas. But when we make Christmas about those things and we miss his son, we miss it. We miss the reality of Christmas. So this in our final week, we're taking another step forward. And we're going to move to expecting. Now as you watch that video, you find expecting and expectations become a big thing for everyone, don't they? What we expect is going to be based a little bit on our experiences, what has happened to us in the past. What we expect is going to be a little bit rooted in our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams, what we long for. And so these expectations start to pave the way for what reality is going to be. What you expect is what you look for. If you come into something with low expectations, sometimes it meets them. And this season, we want to call you to walk into this season with huge expectations. Why? Because we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. When on a dark night, not physically, but spiritually, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven to walk amongst us. It's this reality that we recognize that we are a needy people. (coughs) We're a needy people who wait. Who wait for our redemption. Who wait for our hope. To recognize that that hope was fulfilled in Jesus. And that knowing him prepares us. But we still expect him. We still look for him. So the question I want to put before you this morning, I want to challenge you with this morning is, what are you expecting for Christmas? What are your Christmas expectations? See, when I was a child, I expected presents. My whole expectation was based upon some things I scribbled on a piece of paper and handed to a mall Santa Claus. That became my expectation. So whether that was a bicycle or a Lego set, everything I wanted got wrapped up into that list. But friends, we're not children anymore, are we? So it can't be just about the presents we'll receive. And as an adult, I've stepped into this a little bit more and I can make my expectations about the gifts I get to give. About looking at somebody going, oh, I picked out the perfect thing. This is going to be awesome. And yet we've all had those moments where you picked out the perfect thing only to have your wife take it back. You know, it's not like a personal thing. But even the giving of gifts doesn't meet the expectations, the longing that we have for the moment. I remember last week, last Sunday, we, we left church and we went to the mall for lunch. We've done it a couple of times. We're standing in the hallway when my son sees a mall Santa walk by. I have never seen a moment like this in my son's life. It was actually pretty magical. Overwhelmed, my six-year-old darts off in the mall in another direction. Now, it's not a good idea to run away in a mall, let alone during the Christmas season. And it doesn't occur to me where he's going until I see this fake snow at the end of the hall. And so we walk that way, and my kids are jumping up and down looking like, Dad, it's Santa! Dad, it's Santa! And they're losing it! 
I really don't know what to do with this moment. Now, I'm not trying to address the reality of sin and what you want to do with them or not. And for the sake of conversation, I'm not going to say a whole lot more about that. Because we've got lots of ears in the room. And I'm not going to be that guy. But it was a crazy moment watching my kids' expectation. But at the end of it, there was almost like a, that's it? Like, I, I got to sit on his lap for like a minute. Like, that's, that's it? Like, what do we put our expectations on? It's possible for some of us as adults, if it's not gift-giving, some of us look for it like it's time off. It's vacation. It's like a really long excuse for a weekend to do nothing. It becomes our basic excuse for gluttony and laziness. And I think we'd all confess that's not fulfilling either. And we can call it about family time. In fact, I remember every single year we would ask my mom what she wanted for Christmas, and every year she said the same thing. I just want my children to love me and to get along. And we never gave it to her. (laughs) And so we can go into this with this blind expectation that family is going to be awesome. But who are we kidding? You get enough sinners in a room, of course something's going to happen. Of course something is going to break out. You know, the Democrats in my family and the Republicans in my family start talking about politics. And it starts getting weird. You know, at one point in my family, I had a gentleman in my family who fought in World War II on the American side and a member of my family fought in World War II on the German side, and you really didn't want those guys talking. We have these expectations as if this idea of family is so sweet. And to be fair, it can be. I am looking forward to, with great expectation, time with my brother and sister, my dad, having all of my family, my kids, cousins together. But it's going to be stressful. And it's going to be exhausting. And I'm looking forward to it. But I'd be remiss if I thought that that was the fulfillment that my soul needed, the fulfillment that I longed for. So what kind of expectation should we have for Christmas. Well, it seems we should walk into a Christmas text finally. Several of you pushed me, when are we going to Christmas texts? So let's be Christmassy this morning. Let's turn into Luke chapter 1, and let's look at a woman, Mary, who's about to be expecting to deal with some of her expectations. Seems like a good place to look. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26 This becomes Mary's experience. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Let's just walk through some of these logistics and details and understand that this sixth month is related to Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, or their relatives are closely related to one another. Their stories will entwine a little bit. But that's how this scheduling is related. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel. Now immediately when you dig into a story, this is not going to be your typical one. Because now we're talking about the angel Gabriel, which if you dig into your scriptures, shows up three times that we know of. Now possibly he shows up as an unnamed angel in other places, but we find him repeatedly showing up to speak to Daniel. We find him coming back to talk to Zechariah a few verses before this, but he's not a common character in our Bible to lean into and go, oh, this is going to be a normal experience. 
In fact, you're already set up to see the extraordinary nature of what's coming when God takes a literal angel and moves him from heaven to go meet with a literal person. See, this isn't God raising up a prophet, somebody he'd meet with on a hill, not like Moses who ascended a hill to meet with God face to face. This is God taking an angel and sending him down to meet with a human. And that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And the text continues, and you know the story. Gabriel comes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the Bible describes Mary in this simple terminology. She was a virgin. And what that tells us, this Greek word parthenos, refers to a young unmarried girl. The idea of this young unmarried girl carries the weight of virginity. But let's step into some New Testament culture because it will kind of blow out your expectations of this moment a little bit. I'm going to quote for you a New Testament scholar, John Noland, an Australian. You don't think about many Bible scholars coming from Australia. Here's our Aussie. This is what he says. In Jewish tradition, a girl was normally betrothed in the 13th year. Now process that for a moment. Biblical scholarship suggests that Mary probably was between 12 and 14 when Gabriel shows up. If you've got a 12 to 14-year-old at your home, look at him a little different today. Because God had huge expectations for this girl. Dr. Nolan continues. The Jewish tradition... A girl was normally betrothed in the 13th year and for legal but not domestic purposes was from that point on considered to be married. Around a year later, the girl was taken to the bridegroom's home for normal married life to begin. Now, Dr. Nolan leans into this and gives you this year gap. Do you know what that year gap was for? So that her family could testify to her virginity. You know what happens if it's found for her not to be a virgin? They take her outside and they stone her. So when the Bible says she's a virgin, and you want to challenge virgin birth, let's go with the fact she's a virgin. Because it costs too much for her not to be. And so when it puts this before us, this young girl Mary, and probably 12 to 14, it starts to change how we see this story. Because in my life and in my flesh, I want to make Mary this experienced 27-year-old who's got some maturity, who's able to handle what God's going to put on her plate. Not a 12 to 14-year-old struggling with puberty who has no clue what God's about to do to her. And then we have Joseph. Joseph of the house of David, and that becomes significant for us Because it's Joseph's lineage to King David found in Matthew chapter 1 that sets the stage for Jesus to be a legal heir of David, which will allow him to ascend legally to the king of the, to become the king of the Davidic throne and we'll get there. But this is what we know of Joseph. Joseph had no easy calling either, by the way. We don't know how old he was. We do know that based on a dream, Now, if you want to think about faithfulness in this story, Mary got an angel. If I had an experience, if an angel showed up in my bedroom and told me what to do, there's a 
pretty good chance I'm going to follow it. Joseph didn't get an angel. He got a dream. There are not too many dreams I've had that I've followed through with on obedience. This had to have been something of a different kind of dream for Joseph. When God says to him, do the absolutely anti-cultural thing to do and marry the pregnant woman. Now, Joseph, think about that for a second, what God put before him. I want you to look at this pregnant teenager and bring her into your house. I want you to take that kid who's not yours, and I want you to raise him. What kind of expectations, what kind of hope, what kind of heaviness was God shoving on these two? And the answer was everything. God put a ton on their plate. This virgin girl and this betrothed young man. And this is the message that Gabriel speaks to Mary in Luke 1. These are the expectations he puts on her for her baby. Verse 28, it says, He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at this, the text says. I would be too. Angel shows up, I'm troubled already. He tells me God likes me. I have a hard time believing God likes me most of the time anyway. Let alone an angel showing up and saying, hey man, God likes you. That, that would cause some struggle, and she struggled with it. She tries to discern what kind of greeting this is according to the text. And so the angel comes back and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for I found favor with God. Do not be afraid. It's one of the most common things an angelic being says to a human in our scriptures, and it makes sense. If you lean into Gabriel showing up to Daniel, he takes three different forms. He looks like a human adult male at one point. Looks like a, almost like a little boy at one point. And at one point, looks like a terrifying soldier. I don't know what Gabriel looks like when he says, don't be afraid. But for a moment, picture that strange man in your bedroom talking to you. I suspect most of you are pulling the bat out, let alone the shotgun. Do not be afraid. And what God speaks into this woman's life is I have a lot for you. Don't be afraid of what I want to do. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, that message is huge. Because as we walk through the rest of this message, we can approach all of our spiritual life with fear. As if having some sort of expectation would set us up for failure. As if looking for God to do something and it falling through would somehow ruin us. And yet God proceeds his message with, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. Unless you step into that and say, this message was for her. Friends, let me tell you this. You have found favor with God. Each and every one of us. He shows you favor through his son, Jesus Christ. God likes you. God loves you. He knows all of your junk. He knows all of your mistakes. 
He knows everything you've ever done or thought about doing, and he likes you. Ponder that for a moment. And Gabriel turns up the heat. Gabriel. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. According to the Bible, there are only five men named before they were born. This is one of them. John the Baptist, Moses, I forgot the other three. Hit me up later, I'll Google it. (coughs) And this is the expectation that Gabriel gives Mary. He says, he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Now as this baby is coming into the world, this angel starts to layer upon Mary expectations. Now I don't know if you can remember back to a time or a season when you were pregnant, if you're married and have kids. But I remember finding out that Pam was pregnant with our first son. And the expectations I had for that started growing and growing. But my expectations for Pierce was, man, maybe he'll be like 6'3". That'd be awesome. He could do all the things I couldn't do because I'm short. Maybe he'll be a doctor. That would be incredible. And yet these expectations I've had for him, some I still have for him, though I'm giving up my dream that he'd be 6'3", because I'm pretty confident he's the shortest first grader in his class, boy or girl. These are not the expectations God had for Mary. Listen to that again. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Those are expectations. Those are expectations that nobody could carry except for Jesus. So when Gabriel leans into her, tells this virgin girl she's going to have a baby, a very special baby, he says these three things. So let's look at him. It says he'll be great. Philippians 2 says this, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I suffice it to say, he's pretty great. He was given the name that is above all names. That in his name, every knee, not some, not most, every knee will bow to the name of Jesus Christ. He's great. He's great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. We find this in Scripture to be a clear notation of his divinity. Seven times is this term most high used in the Old Testament. Five in the New. Each and every time referring to God. And in this culture and in this place, if you were to refer to somebody as the son of something, you were looking at them as a type of the Father. That it would be exactly like his dad, a a mirror image. So if you were to refer to somebody as the son of the Most High in this culture, everyone unmistakably would have understood you were calling this baby God from the beginning. 
Son of the Most High, in line with the prophecies given about Jesus in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, and five other places where there's allusions to it. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Many people wonder why there's two genealogies given in the New Testament, one in Matthew, one in Luke. In Matthew, we find basically Joseph's genealogy that gives Jesus literally a direct line back to David as a, from man to man to man to man, so he legitimately could claim the throne. In the book of Luke, you find the lineage of Mary. Because Jesus literally has the blood of David flowing in him from line to line to line to line to line. He was a legal heir to the throne. And it finds Jesus to be the fulfillment of the prophecy given by Nathan to David in 2 Timothy 7. This is what it says. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, And you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Mary would have understood some of this. The Jewish people would have understood some of this. Mary's expectations for this boy start increasing Gabriel starts asserting more prophecy to him and applying it directly to Jesus. And it goes further because it's not just an earthly throne that Jesus would claim. In verse 33, he says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And if you remember, Jacob has a name shift, doesn't he? What is Jacob's new name? Thank you. You guys are getting better at talking to me. When Jacob becomes Israel, you find that if he's going to become the reign over the house of Jacob, Israel... You see this rule that's going to happen that he will rule over all of God's people. (coughs) And he does. Verse 33 continues to say, and his kingdom will never end. And friends, that's not hyperbole. That's forever and ever 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 and ever. His kingdom will not end. And I get sometimes that you and I, when we step into passages like this, not being Jewish, not knowing our Old Testament thoroughly, we miss out on some things. But Mary certainly understood when hearing that her son would be the son of the Most High, that he would claim the throne of David, that he would reign over the house of Jacob, and that he would rule forever, Mary started leaning into the reality that this little boy was not just special. He was the Messiah. He was the one that Israel had looked to for decades and centuries and millennia. He was going to be the Messiah that would take away the people's sin. He would take away the sin of all the world. And if you've read on in the book of Luke, and by the way, that'd be a great way to spend your Christmas break, reading the book of Luke. You'd quickly find that he meets up to every last one of these expectations and more. See, Luke then went on to write the second book, another novel called the book of Acts. 
And you can see how the name of Jesus doesn't just spread in his life, but spreads to the uttermost parts of the world. His name was great. His kingdom was established. And he will return and reign forever and ever and ever. And as we look through all these Old Testament prophecies, which has been a little bit of a highlight of what we've been walking through these last four weeks, you find Jesus literally fulfilling them time after time after time after time. These books are written 400, 700, 900 years before his birth. And Jesus fulfills the prophecy. So as a pregnant woman... What kind of expectations did Mary have for this little boy? What must it have looked like for her to walk into that? And perhaps, more importantly, what might it look like for you? See, God didn't slow down in giving Mary expectations. In fact, you could articulate that Mary could not have possibly been given greater expectations for who Jesus would have been. On about five different accounts, God saw fit to send a messenger to massively increase her expectations of who this kid would be. And yet for some of us, we're going to approach this holiday season like it's a normal day. Like we're celebrating the 4th of July. Oh sure, we're thankful to be free. But we're going to establish our freedom by overindulgence and laziness. And we can approach Christmas this same way. We're glad we're free. And we're glad to have a couple days off of work. And we're glad to get to spend some time laying around. And yet when we lean into this story, we find God stepping into human history and putting before these two a culture-defying, miraculous birth from a virgin. This little baby boy whose kingdom would never, ever end. And so you start to lean into this and you see this contrast between what God wanted to put before Mary And how we approach this holiday that we celebrate. Mary was loaded with expectations for who Jesus would be. And yet we come into it just thinking it's a normal day. A day off work. We walk into it like it's a Where's Waldo book. Occasionally we'll see him. Oh, I think he's over there. Oh, I think I saw him in this. But we continue on. It's possible for us to follow Jesus with this kind of ho-hum perspective. As if this day will be the same as yesterday. As if this month will be the same as next month. As if this year will be the same as next year. Will God do anything? Will he show up at all? Or will I stay where I'm at? Will I be hopeless? Will I stay in my sin? Will I stay in these relationships that suck me dry? What will my future look like? And you start to see how we paint these pictures without God the Son's involvement at all. 
And we miss this reality that when God had a choice to give a pregnant woman, who we all know you don't trifle with, when God had a choice to give this woman expectations, he gave her all of them. What will your expectation for Jesus be this Advent? And church, let's be challenged in this. Because as we walk into this, we want to have expectations like what Jesus, like what Mary had for Jesus. We need to have huge expectations. We need to look and walk into it expecting him to move. You know, if we watch that video over again, you'd find people planning for their expectations. And our faith is the same way. Let's plan for some expectations. Let's plan for it. One of the ways you could plan for it, it's not too late to pick up a Bible reading plan for the rest of the holiday season. Sure, you'd get five days left. And you could either use that to make yourself feel guilty, or you could lean into God's word for five days. That's a way better way to go about it. Let's plan for expectations and see a baby born in Bethlehem radically redefine our season. Because when we lean into Jesus and we lean into him, we find that Jesus gives us an expectation of hope. In John 10.10, Jesus says this, I came that may have life and have it abundantly. I've always loved that verse. I've came that you'd have life and have it to the full. When Jesus put that before him, he's contrasting himself with the thief who comes to kill and destroy. So Jesus doesn't contrast himself with Satan who says, I've come to kill and destroy. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, but I'll keep you safe. But I'll keep you okay. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it fully to you, abundantly to you. I want you to walk with this understanding of who you are with this full love that I have for you. I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be scared. I don't want you to be timid. I want you to go. Live life fully. Peter put it this way in his first letter. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through That's what Peter writes to the church. But you are a chosen race. Do you know what that means about you, literally? You're God's people. Doesn't matter who your mom and dad are. You, literally, are God's people. He's declared this about you. You're a royal priesthood. You know what your position before God is? As a holy priest to do his work. Doesn't matter what you do for a living. Doesn't matter how you spend your free time. This is what God says about you. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter wants to have for you, church, is don't walk into this holiday like it's going to be dark. He called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So that you could proclaim his excellencies. And he finishes by saying, Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. And you know what Peter puts before you? Hope. The hope of Jesus Christ. To know who you are. To know what the Bible says about you. To lean into the reality that what the Bible says about you is true. And you got to lean into its truth. Because we can make it all about everything that Satan wants us to believe about ourselves and miss it. But Peter doesn't have that for us. He wants us to know who we are. He wants us to live in hope. This season, as we lean in, may we have great expectations of hope. And if you've been following the Bible reading plan, then perhaps yesterday you read with us in 2 Peter 3. And it comes to help complete the picture for us. You see an allusion to it in Paul in Peter's first message. He strikes back at it in his second Because the gospel doesn't just merely call us to hope. It actually calls us to holiness. So Jesus gives us us an expectation of holiness. So in 2 Peter 3, 8-11, Peter reminds us of the second advent, which is our hope. And this is what he says. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. The Lord is not slowing to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And what Peter leans in as we live in this time period between the first advent and the second advent, why has he not come back? And the answer is God is patient. There are still some he's desiring to bring into his kingdom. And he puts it before the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass up with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed and lean in on this and see his conclusion. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? And he gives you the answer. Lives of holiness and godliness. Now, friends, as we step into this, please, please, please don't contrast hope and holiness because the Bible doesn't contrast them. The Bible puts them together. That as you know God and you know him personally, he doesn't call you to become a rule follower. He doesn't call you to become a moralist, but he does call you to be like his son. He does call you to begin to reflect the image of his son. And in fact, the best way I can do this is to quote the rapper and theologian Lecrae. Some of you will know that. Some of you won't. But in his song, which I just, uh, what's it called? My kids love this one. I can't remember the name of the song. It says, reflect his image and show the world what he cares for. That's the call of holiness. It's not that we'd be a bunch of do-gooders. It's not that we'd ever look at anybody and say, yeah, you do that, well, you don't get to come with us. It's not that we, we pursue this checklist of do this and don't do that. It's that we work to reflect his image to the world. So does people who walk the streets want to know what God looks like? 
want to know how Jesus would treat them, they see it lived out in you because you reflect his image. And they see it lived out in you because you love them. So in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. How on earth are people going to know that? Are we just supposed to watch football games and watch people write it on their face? No. They're supposed to see it in your lives. As we get over ourselves and live out of this abundance of hope that Jesus has for us, that we want for other people, so we pursue holiness, that our lives would look more like Jesus, so we'd become better reflectors of his image, so that hope would go out. Friends, this holiday season, this Advent season, when we celebrate the coming of the Christ, first as a baby, and then as a returning and a triumphant king, let me call you to this. Ratchet up your expectations. Ratchet them up towards hope. Ratchet them up towards holiness. Ratchet them up so that we'd begin to expect to see God do things. We'd expect to see him move. So that we could believe in him. So that we could trust in him. So that this holiday season wouldn't just be about a baby born 2,000 years ago, but about a living God who's redefined my life and yours by his death and resurrection on the cross. Friends, let us have an infinite hope and a growing holiness as we celebrate Jesus this season. Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. I'm going to give it to you in the message. Some of you are going to push back at me for citing the message in a service. I'm just quoting it. We're not walking through it expositionally. This is what Eugene Peterson, how he writes this passage in modern language. I love this because at a conference years ago, it radically changed how I saw God's hope for me. This is what, how Eugene Peterson translates 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. He says, Dear, dear Corinthians, my beloved, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter into this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives are small. Your, I'm sorry, your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with tremendous affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much that you would leave heaven 
and that you would humble yourself to become a human, to be a baby, that you would come to this earth to walk amongst us, to live with us, and in so many ways to show us true humanity and yet to show us divinity, that we would know your heart and your character so that if we wonder what God looks like, we can look at your son. And yet, Father, you have called us to yourself through the birth of your son. And as we walk into this Advent season, in these next five days before Christmas, and the seasons following, may we not approach this day as if just a baby came. God, you filled Mary with expectations of what you would do through her son. May we not be a people who neuter him. But can we walk into this season with tremendous expectations of hope that you heal, that you free, that you love. And may we step into this season and pursue holiness. Not that we'd be rule followers, but that we would reflect your image because of your hope and your holiness get tied together so many places in Scripture. They don't contrast each other at all. They're callings you put before us to know who we are and to live it out. So, Father, may we walk in such a way that we live that out. Father, I thank you for all the folks here. Whether they have huge expectations for Christmas or not, Father, I pray that you would be at work. I pray that you would move. I pray that any expectation that gets put before your son Jesus gets overwhelmingly responded to. Probably not in the ways we ask, but in ways we'd never hope or imagine. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your son. We celebrate him, and we look for his coming. It's in his name we pray. Amen.